You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. We finished up um, Ephesians chapter 1 a couple of weeks ago, did an application Sunday, and then last week, in light of a lot of our men being gone for um, the, the men's retreat, I didn't want to jump into chapter 2 just yet, and so we really kind of looked back at what we had been learning in chapter 1 and saw some of the the truths there about believers and what it looks like to have enlightened hearts, hearts that can see spiritual realities, and really took some time to see other characters in Scripture that exhibit that. And so we talked about Rahab, an individual that God had been working on her, her heart, opening her eyes to see. And so we saw she's an example of how hearing God's Word should impact our emotions, our belief, and our action, right? She had heard about the things of God, and it had impacted her in such a way to where she believed in this God. Uh, she feared this God. She ran to this God. We saw Caleb as an example as well, an individual who saw the promised land, the same things that the other 10 spies had seen, but he saw it differently. He saw it in light of the promises that God has made, and so uh, he was confident in God's provision there. We saw Abraham, who believed in the impossible, that if necessary, God was going to raise Isaac from the dead because he had promised to make Isaac that, uh, that son that would carry on his line. We saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who believed that the impossible was possible, believed that God could save them from the fire, but were also content if God did not. Um, They said that even if God doesn't save us from the fire, he will deliver us from your hand, which is good enough for us. And so we're therefore willing to go to the fire if necessary to die for our faith. And then we saw Daniel, a guy who experienced some pressures and some problems in his life. He was a part of Nebuchadnezzar's wise men, and they were all sentenced to death because nobody could identify the dream and the meaning of the dream. And yet we're told that he responded with prudence and prayer. He responded with discretion. He responded by going to God for the provision that he needed. And so these are examples of what it looks like to have an enlightened heart, to see things through the lens of God's word. That brings us to uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, it says in verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. What we see in Ephesians chapter 1 is kind of the past, present, and future of God's plan for salvation from his perspective, right? We saw eternity past. We saw how God was working and moving in the present and his destiny for God's people in the future. We saw that in chapter 1. Chapter 2, we're going to see past, present, and future as well, but it's more tied to individual Christians, not so much the overall plan of salvation, but what that overall plan looks like in the lives of individual believers. So chapter 2 opens with us getting a glimpse of our past, right? We saw God's past perspective about salvation, the, the chosen and the predestined aspect of, of how salvation works. Now we're seeing our past, our sinful past, and the past that we're saved from. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 helps us to see how unworthy we are of chapter 1, right? We saw all these identity truths about who we are in Christ, all this hope and inheritance and power that's directed to us as believers. Chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 helps us to see how unworthy we are of that, that without Christ, our identity and our destiny are far different with zero hope. 
We see that salvation is a result of God's sovereign initiative and not our achievement or merit. We're seeing in verses 1 through 3 what we are by nature. And then as we work through chapter 2, we're going to see what we become by God's grace. So our summary sentence for today is remembering our pre-Christ past helps to keep us humble about our salvation and motivates us to live differently as we come to realize we are no longer meant to be swayed by our passions, the world, or Satan's influence. Remembering our pre-Christ past helps to keep us humble about our salvation. Because we're going to see that, again, God's salvation is all about his initiative versus our merit. We don't deserve this. We don't earn this. We don't have a right to it. In fact, the ways that we're described, we absolutely deserve the opposite. So remembering that pre-Christ past keeps us humble about our salvation, and it motivates us to live differently because this is our past, not our present. And so as we realize more that we're no longer meant to be swayed by our passions, the world, or Satan's influence, we are called to live differently. For our kids, all Christians are saved from a sinful past and called to live differently now. You could say that this passage is a summary of Romans chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3 and the doctrine of our sinful nature. Um, In chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Romans, you'll remember that Paul takes a lot of time to work through how every single individual that's ever walked this earth is held under God's wrath because of their sin. And he talks about the Jew. He talks about the Greek. He talks about the one who is exposed to the things of God, to the one who is not exposed to the things of God, and how we are guilty before God. And so what he accomplishes in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Romans, he seemingly attempts to accomplish in three verses here in Ephesians chapter 2. He mentions, you'll see in verse 1, you, the reader of Ephesians, you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. Then he says in verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, right? So there's the you aspect. You're guilty of this. All of us are guilty of this. Uh, And then in verse 3 at the end, he says, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so there's a universal application. What we're reading in verses 1 through 3 applies to all of us, right? Some of us remember this better than others because for some of us, we got saved later in life than others, right? So some of us maybe have only been a Christian for the past two, three, four, five, ten years. Others of us have been saved and and a believer and a follower of Christ for decades, right? Some of us were saved very early before our sinful tendencies and our sinful nature really had a chance to fully exhibit themselves, right? But what we find here is that we all have the same past condition, We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We walked according to the course of this world. We followed the prince of the power of the air, his spirit that's at work in the sons of disobedience. We lived in the passions of our flesh. We carried out the desires of our body and our mind. We were by nature children of wrath. And it applies to all of us universally. Everything in verses one through three is the past tense identity for the believer, okay? I emphasize that because what I want us to see here as Christians this morning is that none of this is presently true about us. None of this is presently true about us that follow Jesus. This is all past tense, and so that gives us confidence. It gives us confidence in our salvation that everything we see in chapter 1, this hope and this inheritance and this power, it rightfully applies to us because we have been saved from this. This is past tense for us, right? 
But I would also say everything in verses 1 through 3 was once true for every believer too, though. Okay, So while it's past tense, it is part of our history. None of us are exempt from this status. None of us were exempt from this condition. What does that mean? Well, it keeps us humble, right? It means that none of us deserved our salvation, whether you were saved at five or whether you were saved at 35, 45, 55. Whenever your salvation occurred, it was not based on anything that you had earned or deserved, right? Even if you were saved at a young age before you had really done anything bad in the eyes of mankind, this is how the Bible would describe you. This was your sinful pre-Christ condition, and so it keeps us humble. None of us came to Christ because we deserved it. I would also say that everything in verses 1 through 3 is currently true for those who are lost. For those that we know in our life, family members, friends, co-workers, neighbors, if they are not a believer, not a follower of Christ, then verses 1 through 3 apply to them. They are spiritually dead. They are preparing for physical death. And it leads to eternal separation from God, what the Bible refers to as a second death, right? This is true for people who are unbelievers right now. They're spiritually dead. They're preparing for a physical death that will lead to eternal separation, what we call a second death in Scripture. I said that first it means we're spiritually dead. What does that mean to be spiritually dead? It means to be alienated from God, right? Unbelievers are certainly very much alive. They are alive to the things of this world. They are alive to the passions of their flesh, but they are alienated from God, Scripture tells us. If you want to jot down some of these verses that give us a broader picture of what spiritually dead means, in Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 through 2, it says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Our sin separates us from God. We're spiritually dead. We're alienated from him. In Luke chapter 15, Luke chapter 15, verse 23. But the father, this is the parable of the... um, prodigal son. It says, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. What are they doing? They're celebrating because the prodigal son has come home, right? He's come home. And look what the verse says in verse 24. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The prodigal son is a, is a parable, a picture of what salvation looks like for us to be alienated, separated, distant because of our sinful choices and decisions. And then through salvation, there's a celebration of us coming back to our creator, right? Coming back home, back to what we were meant to be. And so the father here, a, a picture of our heavenly father celebrates and says, why? Because my son was dead. He was alienated from me. He was separated from me and he has come home. Look what Paul goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. To be spiritually dead is to be alienated from God, to be blinded, to be darkened in your understanding, to be hard in your heart. 
We talked in chapter one about our hearts being enlightened. Before they can really even be enlightened to see the things of God, they have to be made to beat spiritually. Our hearts aren't beating spiritually when we come into this earth. When we're born and raised, until the gospel comes to us, our spiritual hearts don't beat. They are dead. And so before they can really even be enlightened, they have to be brought to life. Before salvation, we're blind to the reality the demands and the glory of Jesus Christ. We don't love him and we don't submit to him. We sang about some of these truths this morning, that he's all we want, he's all we need, right? That we love him, that he's enough for us. Before Christ, he's not those things, right? Before Christ comes in and changes our heart and makes us alive, he's not for us. We reject him. And that's the tragedy of, of our existence. We're made to be image bearers of God. We're made to live for him. We're made for him. Right? We're created by God, for God, and yet we live without God. We use all of our life for our good pleasure. Right? We saw a lot in chapter 1 about how we are meant to be for God's glory, for his pleasure. But because of sin, because of what's passed to us from Adam and Eve, we are born into this world and we are born living for our good pleasure. And this passage here in chapter 2 returns Paul's thoughts to what we saw in chapter 1, Verse 19 and 20. Remember, Paul was giving us his prayer and what he desires for believers. He says in chapter 1, verse 19, what is, he wants us to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Right? Paul is talking about us knowing the resurrection power of Jesus Not just the power itself, but what it means to come alive spiritually, to be raised from the dead. And we'll see this next week, to be able to celebrate on Easter Sunday what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, that we have been made alive in Christ based off of his resurrection is a glorious truth that we'll see next week. But this passage returns Paul's thoughts to this idea that the power of God to raise Jesus from the dead is being applied to us as believers as well. Because our pre-Christ condition is to be dead in our sins, dead to the things of God, and we are prone to follow the things of this world, to follow the prince of the power of the air, to listen to Satan's ongoing lies from the Garden of Eden, that God's not good, God's not in control, God's not worthy to be trusted and followed. We are bent towards that belief until Christ comes and awakens our hearts. So remembering that pre-Christ past helps us to keep us humble about our salvation. We didn't earn it, we don't deserve it. It also motivates us to live differently because what we see is that this is supposed to be our past, not our present, right? And if we're not careful as believers, we will slip into this past and begin to live as though it is present and it is not, right? We live differently as we come to realize we're no longer meant to be swayed by our passions. We're no longer meant to be swayed by the world or by Satan's influence. So let's jump into the text and see more specifically what this looks like for us. Number one, know your past to keep you worshiping. Know your past to keep you worshiping. One of the byproducts of humility is that we are drawn to worship our creator. When pride sets in, like it did with Satan, we are prone not to worship, but to desire worship, right? To puff ourselves up in pride to think that we are something that we're not. And so by remembering our past, by knowing our past, it keeps us worshiping the one who has saved us. Number one, we see in the text that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins. Paul says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Again, 
meant to be past tense, not present for us. Our spiritual deadness comes from our connection to Adam and Eve. Romans chapter 5. This is, this is going to be doctrinally laden today for you to see some of the things that we regularly say as believers rooted in Scripture. Right? This is where this biblical worldview comes from. Why do we believe what we believe about mankind? Why do we believe mankind is uh, born evil, born sinful? Because of what Romans 5.12 tells us. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Right? Our inclination and tendency towards sin comes from the fact that we come from a man who began sin in this world. Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And we see this, I think, clearly when we want to, when we, when we are looking through God's Word to see and understand the world around us, we can see even from the very beginning that our kids are rooted in sin and evil. As babies, we're inclined to fleshly, sinful living. Man, wouldn't it be a blessing if this weren't true and our babies were born with an inclination towards righteousness, right? An inclination towards selflessness. But as cute as our kids are and as much as we love them, they're not bent that way. We don't have to teach them to be selfish. We don't have to teach them to be sinful. We don't have to teach them to reject authority. They're born that way. Right? I see this so clearly in my son Apollos right now. Uh, basic instructions, basic commands, basic things that I ask him to do, he will stand and reject those things. Right? He wants no part of it. He's the type of kid, though, when he wakes up, he doesn't want to linger in his bed. He wants to get up, and he is like, he's like a, a wind-up toy where he is ready to go and ready to live for whatever passion is exhibiting itself in him right then. If he wants to eat, he wants to eat. If he wants to be outside, he's begging you to put his shoes on, right? It's all about what he wants to do. It's all about what his body is telling him is good for him. You tell him to sit down and eat his green beans, he wants no part of it right? You tell him we're not going to go outside because it's pouring down rain. He wants no part of it, right? He's not born in such a way where he is inclined to trust his mom and dad. He's born in such a way where he is inclined to distrust and to rebel. Why? Because Adam passes his sin nature to all of us, right? We're dead in our trespasses and sins. Our trespasses are our specific acts of sin. He says we're also dead in our sins, which is maybe a picture of our overall inclination and bent towards evil. We fail to love God by loving people. We were created for this purpose, and we reject this purpose. We were dead spiritually in our past by committing trespasses in this overall sinful state, and we don't even recognize it. Look what Psalms chapter 36 says. When we're dead spiritually, we're blinded to the fact that we're sinful. Psalm 36, 1 through 4. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. Right? He flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. Right? We are prone to cover our sin. We're prone to justify our sin. We're prone to blame others to make ourselves look like we're not sinful. Right? And we're born this way. We're born with this inclination. We're born in this pre-Christ state where we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're prone to follow the things of this world. We're prone to submit ourselves to the things of Satan. And we have to be 
in the worldly perspective, trained to have that behavior curbed, right? We take our kids in their infant state and we begin to teach them how to live differently than that. We teach them what are the expectations of what it looks like to submit yourself to authority. Even before they're believers, right? Unbelievers try to curb the behavior of little human beings to live differently than what their flesh and their passions would tell them to, right? And there's that law that's written on our heart, right? That right and wrong law that each one of us possesses as well that keeps us from being as evil as we could be, right? That's one of God's gracious things that he gives to all human beings. He gives us all the sunshine. He gives us all the rain for our crops. Whether you're a good person or a bad person, a follower of him or not, you get some of these common grace uh, gifts, right? And one of those gifts is that we have a right and wrong conscience that helps guide us even when we're not believers, And we can be thankful for that because even as believers, we walk and talk and live amongst unbelievers who could be far evil than they really are, right? They don't show their evil like they could. Some of that's constrained. Some of that's restrained by God's common grace, right? This is where we get the concept of that doctrinal term, total depravity, right? Total depravity. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that we're as evil as we could be because we're not, right? Many of us, even before coming to Christ, did not do as much evil as we were capable of doing. What total depravity means is that all aspects of our being have been infected with deadly disease of sin. Every aspect of who we are, our mind, our heart, our motives, everything is tainted by sin, meaning that we have a total inability to fix ourselves. We can't overcome this sinful state. It's not that we're totally evil all the time or equally evil in all of our actions. It just means that every aspect of who we are is tainted by sin. Scripture is real clear that even the ungodly can be good from an earthly perspective at times, right? We saw this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew seven eleven. Part of the ways that we know God's goodness as a father to give gifts is by seeing how even evil people give good gifts to their children, right? Jesus says, even you who are evil, even you who are born with an inclination to sin as a father, as a mother, you know how to give good gifts to your children. You know how to take care of them. Luke 6, 33 talks about how even as unbelievers, they know how to take care of or serve people, show hospitality towards those that they like. It says in Luke 6, 33, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same, right? Sinners know how to be good to people that they like. Sinners know how to be good to people that they love. The the supernatural piece is when that Jesus changes our heart and makes it beat spiritually when it was dead, is that we learn how to treat people the ways that we want to be treated, whether they treat us that way or not, right? It's how we can live out that golden rule. Acts chapter 28, verses one through two. This is when Paul shows up on one of his journeys, it says, after we were brought through safely, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. These are unbelievers. Paul kind of stumbles upon them and they show unusual kindness, even as unbelievers, right? So, We're totally depraved in that we are dead in our sin. We're incapable of being good to merit God's favor, but we're not as evil as we could be because God's common grace restrains some of that. And we even see glimpses of what an image bearer is supposed to be 
as sometimes unbelievers show good traits. Our genetic makeup, our family upbringing, our social circumstances, all of these things kind of determine precisely how we express our sinful nature. So some of us are worse than others from an earthly perspective, and some of that's tied to our background. Some of that's tied to our genetic makeup. We're prone and inclined to certain sins that maybe others aren't. Some of the social implications of how we were raised and what we were exposed to make us prone to certain things that others aren't prone to. What we have to realize, though, is that what's consistent is verses 1 through 3, that we're all dead in our trespasses and sins, regardless of what the outworking of those trespasses and sins look like. And we all deserve wrath for it. Any attempts we make to do good before Christ are void of a desire to honor and glorify the Creator, and so therefore cannot be considered truly good. This is the opposite of the world's teaching, right? The world would teach us that we're primarily good, and if we believe in ourselves and work on ourselves, we're capable of anything. Satan would have us to believe opposite of this, but Scripture is very clear that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins. And number two, because of that, I was once destined for eternal wrath. My lifestyle and my sinful condition warranted his wrath. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6. This is after he's listed off some sinful activity. He says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. It's that same term that he uses in verse 2. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's our sinful activity that warrants God's wrath upon us. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. And then it says we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He will act, God will act in a righteous manner towards those who remain in their sin. If we fail to turn ourselves to Jesus, God will act in wrath towards us. John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. God's a moral constancy, right? He always reacts to evil in the same unchanging, predictable, and uncompromising ways. He's right in his response. And he's always right in his response. And we can take ho- comfort and hope in that. We're doing a, um, we, we were doing a dodgeball tournament at Trinity for our middle school. Just to kind of shake it up a little bit. March is like a long month. There's no breaks really in there. Um, things get a little mundane. And so we had decided to do a dodgeball tournament. And so we pulled kids out of class randomly on Wednesdays and had them come play with their team against other teams. Started off friendly. It was fun, and then as it got closer to the championship, things got heated and things got more um, important in the eyes of our students, right, as the games became more competitive. And so in our semifinals, we had two teams matched up, and I mean, everything was being highlighted to me as far as how bad of a referee I was for that dodgeball tournament, right? I was, apparently, I was missing everything, right? So I'd have one team that was yelling at me and arguing with me and trying to address that, and then something's happening over here, and then this team's, like, upset about it, and I'm like, hey, I can't see what's happening when I'm trying to adjust, address this thing right here, right? And so the kids were just frustrated because they felt like injustices were happening, and I finally had one girl look at me, and she said, I thought this was a Christian school, right? <laughs> like, how dare you not call this person out, right? 
Um, it's a reminder that in our humanness, like we miss things. Like even the best attempts to be good judges, we fail. We, we miss things. We don't see things, right? God is a moral constant in that he sees and identifies what truly deserves his wrath, right? And, and he will respond in the appropriate ways, and, and he was going to respond to us in the appropriate way. We were by nature children of wrath. We deserve We deserve what we were destined for because we were dead in our trespasses, walking according to the world, following the prince of the power of the air, following the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body. We deserve wrath like the rest of mankind, but we've been saved from it. And this is our past. It's not meant to be our present. What's the implication here? May we always remember where we came from in order to fight the spiritual pride we are tempted to exhibit as we grow. Man, as we grow spiritually, as we're sanctified, as we learn to trust Jesus more, as we learn to turn to him more faithfully and more consistently, that time gap that it takes for us to turn to Jesus lessens as we grow in our faith and our faith is strengthened, right? May we always remember where we came from, that in and of ourselves, there is no glory in how we are living now. There is no praise for us. Remember, Paul highlights the growth of the Ephesians, and who does he praise? He praises God for it, right? He doesn't celebrate them. He celebrates God for what he has done in their life. May we always remember where we came from, that verses 1 through 3 is our past. No matter when we were saved, this is what was true about us before Christ. So as we grow, we can fight against the spiritual pride that we're tempted to exhibit. We don't take glory from him. We give him all the glory for his good pleasure. Know your past to keep you worshiping. Number two, know your past to keep you growing. Know your past to keep you growing. Man, read these things that describe us before Christ and be intentional to make sure they are not descriptive of us after Christ. Right? Know these things are meant to be a description of us before Christ, not descriptive of us how we are after Christ. We're no longer to live as though we're dead in sin. We're no longer to live as though we follow the course of this world. We're no longer to, to, to look as though we follow the prince of the power of the air or that we live according to the passions of our flesh. We're not to be the type of people who carry out the desires of our body. We're to be different than that, right? Know your past to keep you growing. Number one, I once followed the ways of this world. I was controlled by worldly influences and I was driven by worldly values and I was saved from this because I desperately needed it. Galatians chapter 1, verse 4. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. This is past tense. I used to be controlled by worldly influences. I used to be driven by worldly values. My attitudes, my habits, and my lifestyles used to be shaped by the culture rather than God's word. Right? The, the, the world would tell us that sin is acceptable and righteousness is strange. Man, and I, I, you know, our kids are growing up in a day and age that's far harder to be faithful to Christ than it was for many of us when we were growing up their age. Right? The world says certain things and certain behaviors and certain activities are to be accepted. Even if you're not doing it, you should accept it that somebody else is doing it. Right? And our kids are being challenged in their faith because 
the emotional side of this culture would tell us to accept it and how dare, how dare we try to tell somebody they're wrong for it. Right? The world would tell us that sin is acceptable and that righteousness is strange. But our attitudes, habits, and lifestyles are to be shaped by God's word and what he says is acceptable and to reject the things that he tells us to reject. We once followed the ways of this world. Number two, we once lived for the desires of our flesh. Prior to Christ, our works and the fruit of our works were selfish in nature. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh, these are the things that we produce before Christ, are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I love how Paul here sprinkles in some of these sins that we would say, whoa, like serious stuff Paul's talking about, things I've never been guilty of. Then he sprinkles in some things that you're like, man, I might be guilty of that every single day, right? Like he, 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 he merges these different sinful habits and shows us if we're being led by the Spirit and not the desires of the flesh, these things won't be carried out. But if we give into the flesh things that we used to do, things that we used to be okay with, then we will exhibit these type of things. Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 3. But sexual immorality, all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Again, he weaves in these things that we think we would never be guilty of with things that we're oftentimes guilty of and says these things ought not to be among us. These fleshly passions, it's really good desires that have gone bad, right? Think about every sinful act is really a good desire that's gone bad. Whether it's gluttony, where we have a desire to eat and enjoy the things that God has given to us, it's one of the first things that he instructs in the Garden of Eden, right? I've created all this, take and eat, it's good for you, right? What do we do in our selfish nature, our selfish tendencies? We abuse that desire and become gluttonous. God's given us a desire to rest or a need to rest, right? To, 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 um, to rest as he patterned it for us in the book of uh, Genesis. But what do we do? We become very slothful and lazy with that need for rest. Sexual perversion, he gives desires, we pervert and abuse those desires, right? We live in such a way where our good desires go bad, we abuse them, and it's impossible to please God in this condition. This pre-Christ state, it's impossible. Romans 8, verse 8, those who are in the flesh, they can't please God. They can't please him. What's the implication here? Our lives are to reflect a different trajectory with us being submitted to God's ways 
and led by his spirit through his word. This is what our life is supposed to be like now. Different, submitted to God's ways, led by his spirit through his word, not living according to the things of this world, not living according to the desires of our flesh. And the world would tell us the exact opposite, right? Would tell us to live so contrary to God's word. To live in obedience to our flesh. To basically act like a baby, right? (laughs) To live like my son Apollos at all times is what the world would tell us is what we should be doing. To live after every inclination or desire that you want. The Bible tells us different. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. God steps in and stops it. God steps in and changes our trajectory to where we now live differently. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Our past is that we yielded to the world. Our present is that we are to yield to God's word. And then number three. Know your past to keep you sharing. Specifically, know your past to keep you sharing God's word, to keep you sharing the gospel with others. I want you to see that these verses, while it's past tense for us, it has a lot to say to us. It tells us to stay humble and to keep worshiping, that we don't merit God's forgiveness. We don't merit our salvation. It also tells us to keep growing, to to be different than what our past says about us. But it also encourages us to keep sharing the gospel and to have our expectations um, tempered by the fact that we can't save others. We can't do it. Look at what we're up against when it comes to saving, or look what we're up against when it comes to the salvation of others, right? They're dead. They're blinded. They're following the course of this world. They are being influenced by the supernatural, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now in work in the sons of disobedience. Look at the ways that Paul describes unbelievers. Number one, mankind continues to be held sway by Satan. The Bible says that he's permitted authority in this world to influence unbelievers, to keep them blinded at times to the truth. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, there's hope in that verse, right? Because you read that and you say, man, Satan's like a bad dude. He's he's keeping people from getting saved. He's veiling them to the gospel, right? Paul says, if somebody remains veiled, it's because they are going to perish, right? If God, if God was working to save them, they would be saved, right? But it says that they're blinded, they're veiled by Satan to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. There's this supernatural influence. His influence is limited, though, by his creaturely restriction to space, right? So when it even talks about the spirit here, we're not saying that Satan can be everywhere all the time and influence everybody, right? So when people say that they are being influenced or tempted by Satan, 
That's not true in the same ways when we say the Holy Spirit is empowering us. The Holy Spirit can empower every believer at the exact same time because he is God and he is omnipresent, and Satan is not. Now, Satan can influence all unbelievers and believers at the same time through the spirit of the world, but not by him individually because he is a finite, angelic, demonic being that can only be in one place at one time. And I doubt he's ever really felt the need to come that close to me because I'm pretty good at just giving into my flesh without him having to come tell me to, right? He's finite, but he does work in the bigger, broader picture through the culture and the things of this world. And so there's very much a supernatural sway over the unbeliever. His power and sway energizes the unbeliever similar to how the power of God works within the believer. It's a similar word usage that we see in Ephesians chapter 2 as we saw previously in chapter 1, where it talks about the power of God energizing us and him working in us, it says this spirit of Satan, this evil spirit, is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It energizes the unbeliever to live disobediently. His method is to create lies that lead us to doubt God's word, both in its existence, its truth, and its motive, right? Satan wants the world's message to cause us to doubt God's word. Number two, mankind continues to be held swayed by a spirit of disobedience. So as we seek to evangelize, as we seek to rescue people from their present, what is our past, we have to remember they're held sway by Satan. They are held sway by a spirit of disobedience, right? They are born into this sinful condition. Wherefore, their practice is to live in accordance with the nature they inherit, energized and empowered by the worldly system that is being orchestrated by Satan. Think about this perfect trifecta of influence. You've got an evil environment, the world, an evil influencer, a supernatural influencer in Satan, and then you have people who are born with evil tendencies, right? It's a, it's a recipe for disaster. Evil world, evil influencer, and evil people. What are you going to get? You're going to get a whole lot of evil, right? A whole lot of evil. You have an external peace, the world, an internal peace, our passions and desires of the flesh, and then a supernatural peace with Satan influencing this tyranny of the three, the flesh, the world, the Satan, it's not easy to overcome. It requires the supernatural stepping in, right? It's why we can't be bold and prideful about our salvation because we're not strong enough to overcome those three. Our desires, the sinful world and sinful Satan, we can't get ourselves out of that. The lost person is constantly moving and operating within the influence of the tyranny of this three. It needs a supernatural revamping. So what does that mean for us? Well, I think it means number one is an implication. Our condition before Christ reminds us that even the best conversations and the best arguments cannot convince the unbeliever without spiritual intervention. I was listening to a podcast put out by Snowbird on the resurrection. They were talking about like proofs of the resurrection, arguments for the resurrection, right? If you look at it from the evidence-based facts and the only thing that makes sense is the resurrection. But I was reminded as Brody was talking about these evidences and arguments for the resurrection, the Pharisees are there on the scene, right? They know that it's not the wrong tomb. They know that his body's not been stolen, right? And what do they do? They tell the, they tell the guards, hey, we'll pay you off to spread a story that his body has been stolen, right? Everything points to the resurrection, and the Pharisees say, we will still not submit to the resurrected Jesus because we do not want to. Not because the evidence doesn't point to it, it's because we do not want to, 
right? It's an encouragement to us because some of us have labored for years sharing the gospel with individuals and they do not turn to Jesus, right? Let us not lose sight of the fact that we are up against supernatural conditions, right? Individuals are born spiritually dead, prone to follow the passions of this world, and that cannot be changed, cannot be changed unless the supernatural steps in, right? So what does that mean for us? It means that we share the gospel not to save people, but to be obedient to what God's called us to, right? It's not our obligation. It's not up to us to present the most foolproof argument or to give the greatest presentation of the gospel. Man, I listened to this other podcast that Brody did. They were talking about a guy overseas who became saved, right? Islamic background gets a broken, uh, in pieces presentation of the gospel where an English guy is trying to communicate the gospel to a guy who doesn't speak English. And he's getting broken pieces of it through a translator and the guy gets saved, right? And his family starts to get saved. And hundreds are coming to faith in Christ because of a broken gospel presentation. But the difference between a great presentation and a broken translation presentation and whether somebody gets saved is the supernatural stepping in. The supernatural stepping in to override a sinful past, right? So we need to know this past to keep sharing because we don't get discouraged when somebody's not becoming a believer. We recognize the fact that we are doing this to be obedient, trusting that the supernatural will step in and intervene. Our identity truths for today, just one, every Christian used to be dead in sin, enslaved to bodily passions, and drawn to the things of the satanic world, but no longer is. This is our past. It's not our present. Past, not present. We used to be these things, but by God's grace and by Christ's provision, we are no longer. So the application for us today is, is the gap appropriately widening between what you were and what you were supposed to become? We talk a lot about that gap lessening when it comes to trials, difficulties, undesirable circumstances hitting our life, the gap lessens, the time gap lessens in us turning to Christ and trusting him. Now we're talking about how the gap needs to widen, right? From what we used to be to what we are called to become. We need to be farther and farther away from what Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 describes. Somebody who is dead in sin, trespasses, living according to this world, following the things of Satan, giving into their passions. That gap needs to widen, that we are no longer those things. And we'll see next week. It's by God's grace that we can be something far different. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We thank you for these truths. We thank you that while this was our past, it does not have to be our present. That if we will turn to you, confess Christ, admit our sin, admit our need for a Savior, we can experience your life-giving power. God, I thank you that you made my dead heart beat and that you were daily enlightening it more and more to see what you desire for me to become. God, give all of us that are believers the power needed to live our lives differently this week than what it would have looked like had you not saved us. And God, for those that may be sitting here today that aren't believers, that this is still their present. They're still dead. God, we pray that you would awaken them, that you would resurrect them spiritually, 
that your word would go forth and bring about salvation. We recognize that the greatest gospel presentations aren't capable of changing dead men's hearts. So we pray for the supernatural to step in. As we share the gospel, as we communicate the truth of who you are to others this week, God, we pray that you'd go with us. You'd take our words and you would penetrate the hearts of others and do the work necessary to bring about salvation. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.